we're, we're looking here at the fall. We've, we've seen creation and the special creation of man and woman in marriage in Genesis 2. And uh, now we're looking at Genesis chapter 3 and we're seeing uh, the fall. And there's kind of some bleak passages here in the, the coming weeks that we're going to look at. And hopefully as we look at these bleak passages, we keep our eye on Christ, you know, who has, who has dealt with sin. And Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, our church family. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity we have to... Uh, to fellowship together and, and to look at your word uh, this morning. And we pray that you would help us to, to rightly understand it and to rightly respond to it, to have hearts that are, that are sensitive to uh, what you would have us know and believe and, and do. And we pray that you would help us uh, to encourage one another in our walks. And we, we pray for those this morning who are hurting. We know that there are some even this morning uh, in the hospital. We know of family members who are in the hospital this morning, and, and it's just always a very difficult time. And so help us to know how to respond, how to care for those who are hurting. Help us to communicate the good news of your son, Jesus, to them. And we pray this in, in his name. Amen. A few years ago, Whitney and I planted some apple trees uh, behind our house, and we planted a golden, delicious apple tree, and then we planted two Honeycrisp apple trees on either side. And uh, this year, for the first time, all three apple trees produced fruit, and so we were pretty excited about that. We wanted some apples, and so we went out there and uh, about a week and a half ago, and we were looking at the apples, and the kids were beginning to pick them off the tree, and, and I'm walking around, and uh, I see I see the apple. I see the best apple in any of the apple trees. And unfortunately, the apple is a little bit beyond my reach, a couple of feet above my head. And so I, I call over Ellie. And I say, hey, come here, Ellie. I want you to stand on Daddy's shoulders and reach that, that apple up there. And she looks at me like, are you kidding? I said, no, no, you can do it. You're, you, you love this stuff. So, okay. And so she, she hops on my, my shoulders and she's kind of doing this. And I say, okay, so th- that apple right there. And so she grabs an apple and hands it to me. I said, no, 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 not, not this one, the, the best one. Uh, it's just a little bit behind that one. And so she, re- you know, tries to steady herself and grab an apple. It's the, the wrong one again. And so I, I said, you can do it. It's just, see that branch right there. It's kind of where the cross branches and just grab that, that nice round apple. And so she grabs it and she, she jumps down off my shoulders and she hands me the apple. And I say, oh yeah, not the apple I thought it was, I guess, and kind of a little disappointing. 
but then I see another apple. No, <laughs> but she asked me, she goes, now dad, what, what made that apple so great? What, what made you want to have me grab that apple? And I thought about it. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I wonder, what, what motivates us to, to like an apple? Or what, motiv- what motivates us to do so many things, right? And I was thinking about that as, as I think about Genesis 3, because I think as I, I come to Genesis 3 and I read verses 1 through 7, there's, there's a question that I have every time I read this passage, and I'm sure it's a question you've had as well. And the question is why, right? Why this fruit? Here Eve has been placed along with her husband Adam, in this garden that is full of trees that are delightful. The fruit of these trees is is delicious. And she's been placed there, and Adam has been placed there, and and they can literally eat of of any tree out there, the, the fruit of any tree out there they can eat. And why does Eve choose to eat from this tree, the fruit of this tree? Now, I can understand why I would do it, You place me in a garden, I have a sin nature, and you say, don't do this. That's all you have to not do. I mean, I'm going to do it. But what about a person who's sinless? What motivates that person to, to disobey? What causes a person who has lived in absolute perfection to choose to do something that is disobedient? And I think that's the question that Moses is trying to answer as, as we look at these verses. There are so many things, and we'll talk about this as we go on, there are so many things that Moses could have mentioned in this story to help us understand some other things, but he, he doesn't mention a lot of things. And I think his focus is on this question, why does Eve disobey? What causes her to do that which God has told her not to do? And the answer that I think Moses gives us is that Eve chooses to disobey because of unbelief. Remember, Moses is compiling, writing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And this section of scripture is written by Moses to the people as they prepare to go into the promised land. And as they go into the promised land, they're going to be around people who live in disobedience to God. And Moses' call on the people is to live in obedience to God. And he's given them a lot of law, right? A lot of regulation, a lot of stipulations about how they're to conduct themselves in the land in obedience to God. And what we see as we go through the Pentateuch is that the essence of obedience is faith. Here, the the people that he's talking to have a lot of laws, a lot of regulations, a lot of things that God has told them to do as they go in to live in this land. Now, he's telling them the story of a person who had one law, one thing that they were supposed to do or not do, and that they were supposed to not eat of the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one thing that they were supposed to not do, and they do it. Why does Eve do it? What we're going to see I believe in this passage is that Eve does it because of unbelief. She doesn't believe what God has said. She doesn't trust in his character. She denies his goodness. And because of that unbelief, she sins. She disobeys. The unbelief itself is sin. Because of that sin of unbelief, she disobeys. And what Moses is helping us to understand, and this is the central thing that I want us to grasp as well, is that 
The fruit of unbelief is disobedience. Unbelief always produces disobedience. You see, the question we have when we come to this text is why does, why does Eve sin? But that's also a question that you and I should ask ourselves, right? Whenever we sin, okay, what is it that, that causes me to live in a disobedient way? I mean, here I am, I, I'm in a situation and I, I know what obedience to God looks like and yet at times I choose to disobey. What is it that motivates me to disobey? And I think what we see is that it's unbelief. I sin because I desire something I shouldn't desire. And why do I desire that? Because I don't believe God. I don't trust God. I don't believe what he has said about sin. I don't believe what he said about himself. I don't believe what he said about the consequences of sin. I don't believe what he said about the, the pleasures of following Jesus Christ. I don't believe. In the moment when I sin, disobedience comes from a heart of unbelief. And I want us to look at ways that we demonstrate unbelief by, by looking at this text, Okay. The fruit of belief is obedience. The fruit of unbelief is disobedience. It's disobedience. The fruit of unbelief is disobedience. That's what I want us to see as we look at this passage. Now, here's the first thing that I I want us to see about unbelief in our lives as we look at Eve here in Genesis 3. Number one is this. I demonstrate unbelief when I see God's rules as restrictions on my happiness. I demonstrate unbelief when I see God's rules as restrictions on my happiness. Here's what happens in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let me just stop there for a second. As we come just to the end of the first sentence and the first verse, there's, there's probably a lot of questions that they have and as, as, they, as they read this in Moses' day. And the thing that's kind of interesting to me is that Moses doesn't address a lot of the questions that his original audience might have had or questions that you and I might have as well. So, for example, this, this serpent, if, if all you had of God's special revelation was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would have no idea really who that serpent was, right? I mean, you would know that the serpent was, was this snake, and you would know that it was kind of a, a weird snake because it's talking, and you would know that this snake is not part of, uh, of the non-created world. It's, it, the snake is a creation, so it's, it's not equal with God, but you wouldn't know a lot about the serpent. You would know that it was crafty, that it's trying to accomplish its means through deception, but there's a lot you wouldn't know. Now, so Moses is writing here the Pentateuch, the beginning of God's story of redemption, and here's the fall where redemption becomes necessary. We're looking at this story from the future, from knowing more about God's plan of redemption. So let me just say a couple things about the serpent that we know now. We know, as you go through the rest of Scripture, that there is an adversary of God. In Job, chapters 1 and 2 in the Old Testament, you encounter this, this adversary. And we know that this adversary deceives and tries to work destruction to diminish the glory of God being manifested in the lives of humanity. We know also in Scripture that this enemy is, is Satan. This adversary is Satan. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says to the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil, and it's your will to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a a liar and the father of lies. And there's this adversary of God. He's a destroyer, a murderer, and is a deceiver. He works through deception and lies. And Jesus says he's done it from the beginning. In other words, here at the beginning of human history. We know from Revelation that the serpent is Satan. It says in Revelation twelve nine, and also in verses 14 and 15, it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And so there's this future reckoning of the adversary of Satan. Revelation 22 says, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan was bound for a thousand years. And we continue to see his destruction throughout the story in the book of Revelation. Now, how, as we look at, chapter 3, verse 1. There's another question that comes to our mind, right? How did this serpent become evil? And just like Moses doesn't tell the original audience much about who this serpent is, he also doesn't tell much about the origin of evil outside of the sin here. He doesn't tell how the serpent became evil. Now, again, as we look at the rest of God's story through Scripture, we fill in some more of the missing pieces in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and in Jude chapter 6, we read about a rebellion that was in, in heaven. We see about this demonic world, these, these angelic beings that rebelled against God. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah is writing about Babylon, but I think he's referring here to, to Satan as well, kind of using Satan as an illustration for Babylonians' rebellion. He, he says... In verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. This is Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And I think there he's, he's alluding to this demonic rebellion in which Satan was, was the head of it. And so we know from our perspective of redemptive history who this serpent is and what he's trying to do. But again, the interesting thing is that Moses doesn't communicate those things. Maybe Moses doesn't know fully who this serpent is. Now, what what does that mean? What it means is that the point of the text isn't who is doing the deceiving. That's not the the main thrust, but what form that deception is taking, what he's doing more than who he is. The the focus is much more on on how this, this heart of unbelief manifests itself and is developed, I think, than actually who the serpent is at this point in the story of of redemption. The focus of this point is not so much the who he is as what he does. And listen to what he does in the rest of verse 1. He says to the woman, did God actually say, in other words, he's, he's kind of incredulous. He's like, hey, Eve, I was kind of walking around the garden. I heard a crazy story. Uh, did God actually say that you can't eat any of these trees? And, and what is the serpent doing here? What is, what is Satan doing here as, as he communicates this? He's trying to cause Eve to see not God's extravagant goodness, but he's trying to cause Eve to focus on God's restrictions. Is it true that of all these great things, God is, God is being this, this uh, 
kind of hard guy and, and not allowing you to eat any of these, these, uh, the fruit of any of these trees. And the woman responds this way. She says, well, we may eat. And, and by the way, I believe that sin enters humanity before the eating, uh, the actual act of eating the fruit. I think sin takes place right as the woman begins to respond to the serpent because she demonstrates a heart of unbelief. The disobedience takes place as she eats the apple, but the sin of unbelief has taken place already. Listen to, listen to how she responds. Well, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now, already you see that she has described the situation differently than God did in chapter 2. In, in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God says, look, you may surely, and so there's this, this emphasis on, on the expansiveness of his grace, you may surely eat out of every tree in the garden. There's, there's a focus on the, the bounty of God's grace. Look, look at where I've placed you, and, and this is all yours, and, and surely it's yours. But that's not how the woman responds. She says, well, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, she says in verse 3, God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. In fact, she goes on to say, neither shall you touch it, which is not what God said, lest you die. Now, I believe, I believe that what the woman should have said in response to the serpent, when the serpent said, is it true that God has restricted you from doing all these things? I believe what the woman should have said should have been a response that exalted the character of God. She should have said, no, 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 you've, you've totally misunderstood God. Here's what God has done. God has placed us in the midst of this garden, and this whole thing is ours. That tree over there, I love that tree. And I, I eat it, you know, like every third day I like to eat from that tree. And over, over here is this tree and all oh, this. I haven't even tried the tree over there, but that looks amazing. And, and I don't, it's going to take me forever to work my way through this garden. But that's not what she says. She focuses on, on the restrictions. There's this uh, comic strip that I, I saw the other day, and uh, it's, it's a little boy and, and his dad, and, and the dad uh, looks at his son, and he says, uh, I want to help you fulfill your desires for everything you want in this world. I, I want to fulfill your desires for everything you want in this world. And the little boy says, can I have some ice cream? And the dad says, No. <laughs> And, I, and I, I laugh at that because, you know, as, as a parent, that's the tension you face, right? You, you look at your child and you're like, man, I, I just want to do everything I can to fulfill your desires for everything in the world. I want to make you happy. I want you to experience the fullness of joy of living in the world. And, and then your kid asks you for something you know isn't going to be good for them. And so you have to say, uh, actually, not that. <laughs> so, you know, you, you see your kids and you want, I mean, I love staying up with my kids. Hey, why don't we just stay up and, and uh, watch a movie and then play a game and, and uh, then, you know, rational thought takes over. You say, actually, that's probably not the best for you, so you need to go to bed. Or you want to, uh, you know, you put restrictions on uh, the soda they drink. Or, you know, hey, kids, you, you can't just uh, directly eat sugar out of a bowl. I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm going to be kind of a hard parent there, but no, okay? There's restrictions. Now, a child that trusts, in, <laughs> a child that trusts in the character of their parents 
is okay with those restrictions. Maybe they're not excited about them all the time. But it's okay. I, I trust the character of, of mom and dad. I know that they're not just doing these things because they like to see me unhappy. That the parent who trusts in the character of the, the, the child who trusts in the character of their parent says, I know that mom and dad are doing these things because they, they love me. They love me. I demonstrate unbelief. When I look at God's rules and I say, these are restrictions on my happiness. I want to be happy, and instead I've got these rules that God has placed on me. It just is a thought of application, right? As you think about your relationship with God and his commandments, the things he said that, that you need to do, do you have a heart that is celebrating the expansiveness of God's grace in your life? Or do you have a heart that sees God's commandments as, as these burdensome restrictions? The heart that sees God's commandments as burdensome restrictions is going to be the, the heart of a legalist. The heart of a legalist says, okay, fine. I, I've, got to, I've got to obey God. And obeying God means keeping rules 1 through 20. And I'm going to keep rules 1 through 20, but, but I'm also going to look for some loopholes for rules number 13, uh, 15, and 18. Because, you know, I, I'm going to do those, but I'm going to try to find ways around them as well. It's the heart of the legalist. And, and the heart of the legalist is going to say, I'm really good at obeying rule number 10. And so I'm going to look at other people and see if they're obeying rule number 10 as well as I am. And if they're not obeying rule number 10 as well as I am, I'm going to resent them. And I'm going to think badly of them. That, that's the heart of a legalist. That's the heart of a person who sees God's rules as a bunch of restrictions restrictions on happiness. The person is going to be very miserable in a lot of ways in their relationship with God. In fact, as they think about the relationship with God, it's not going to be in, often thought of in terms of relationship with an, an entity. It's going to be thought of relationship with a, a rule giver. Now, what about the heart of a person who sees God's commandments as his grace? That person is going to respond to God much differently. They're going to love God they're going to love others. And they're going to see his commandments, yes, is, is sometimes difficult. And sometimes the spiritual disciplines of, of giving or, or reading scripture or, or, or praying, sometimes the, the person's going to acknowledge, yeah, acknowledge, yeah those, those are difficult to do for me sometimes. But I see that those things are part of God's grace in my life. And that he wants me to do those things not because he wants to restrict my happiness, but because he wants it to be expansive. Here's a second way unbelief is demonstrated in my life and in this text. I demonstrate unbelief when I deny the terrible truth that sin ends in death. Verse 4, what does the serpent say? The serpent said to the woman, you know, she's just said, the day that you do this, you'll die. The serpent says, you will not die. What you have said about the consequences of sin, the serpent says, is not true. What does scripture tell us about the consequences of sin? Well, it's much the same thing that we see there in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, that sin does end in death, right? Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, is death. Romans, I'm sorry, James 1.15, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. 
So yeah, sin does end in death. That is a consequence of sin, and we have to acknowledge that. But we also see in Scripture there are other consequences of sin. In Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, the psalmist says, If I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So my relationship with God when I choose to sin is damaged. There's also the, the consequence of of, of loss of good things. Jeremiah five twenty five says you're in, he's talking to the people of Israel and that what God wants to provide for them. And he says, your iniquities have turned these good things away and your sins have kept good from you. In other words, I'm not talking about the health and wealth gospel here where if you just obey God enough, he'll give you a bunch of physical blessings. But there are, there are good things that happen in the life of a person who's obedient to God and a person that, that chooses to, to live a life of sin has to deal with the consequence of those sins. The negative consequences of sin in their life. So you choose to treat people badly, there's going to be a damage of relationship. You, you choose to, to harm others and what you say to them, that's going to affect you beyond just that, that moment of sin. You, you choose to engage in a dishonest lifestyle or things that undermine how you feel about other people. You choose to think about things in a wrong way. That's going to have consequences of, of denial of good things. There's also the consequence of shame consequence of shame. Romans 6.21 is a very important verse, I think, to think of as, as you consider the consequences of sin and, and shame. Paul writes, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So in other words, what fruit, what benefit were you getting from those, those actions of sin that you were doing, that you, now you think about them and, and you're ashamed. And I would imagine that, that most, if not all of us, can think of, of ways in which we have sinned, that now we, th- we think about them and there's just this, there's a sense of shame. There's been something we've done in a relationship with another person, something we've said that, boy, you could not pay us enough to to let that become public. Or maybe it has become public. And and even just thinking about the exposure of that sin and the consequence of that sin just fills your stomach with this uneasy feeling as you think about the consequence of that sin, that the shame you felt when that sin was discovered. Scripture tells us that, that sin has consequences. And the heart of unbelief says, okay, I know that God has said, I know God has said that, that gossip is going to bring consequences. And I know that God has said that deception is going to bring consequences. And I know that God has said that immorality is going to have some consequences. But I, I just don't, I don't think so. I think God has overstated the consequences of sin. I think that in this instance, right now, I can, I can do this action and I will somehow find myself magically immune from the consequences of sin. I think this time I can get away with it. And what is that? That's unbelief. I don't believe what God has said about sin and its consequences on my soul and the, the consequences in the lives of other people. One of the, the things that I enjoy in life is peanut butter. And uh, peanut butter has a really good friend called chocolate. And 
I love to see peanut butter and chocolate hang out together. And uh, one of my favorite things, uh, you know, just when I'm, I'm, I'm totally don't care about consequences, is to get uh, just a big, big chocolate bar and a, a big spoonful of, of peanut butter and let those guys just hang out in my mouth, right? Which I don't think would be bad on occasion, but, but the, the problem is at 3 a.m., those two do not get along well. And I, I will sometimes just wake up just moaning, and I have to do it quietly so Whitney doesn't say, hey, have you been eating chocolate and peanut butter together again, right? But some, I think sometimes I just fool my, this time, I think it'll be okay. <laughs> There's consequences, Right? consequences, and they, they show up in unpleasant ways and in unpleasant times. The heart of unbelief looks at an action and denies that the consequences will be that bad. Here's my encouragement to you, kind of two, two things of encouragement as we think about this. I demonstrate unbelief when I deny the terrible truth that sin ends in death. Number one, don't be deceived, okay? Don't be deceived. Galatians uh, chapter 6 says, don't be deceived, verse 7, this is Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't be deceived, don't fool yourself and say, hey, this time I think that this sin won't have any consequences. One of the things that uh, one of the things someone did one time in a counseling session that I was was helping with is uh, it was, I was with me with Joel Smith and I've mentioned this before, but uh, Joel Smith from from Bethany Baptist Church was kind of uh, letting me observe some counseling and he uh, he told a person he said what I want you to do is I want you to write out the consequences of the sin that you've chosen to do. And so the person began writing out the consequences during the week. They wrote out the consequences to themselves, the consequences to their children, the way that this sin had affected their wife, the way that it affected their coworkers, their friends, their church, their relationship with God. And it was, it was staggering. It was staggering. There were just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of consequences of this sin. The heart of unbelief says, I don't believe God. I don't believe what God says about the consequences of sin, that it ends in death. Now, here's the other application that I give here, the thought of, of application, and this is an encouragement. The work of Christ completely deals with the consequences of sin in terms of judgment. In terms of judgment. Paul tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it is absolutely true that sin ends in death. But the good news is that someone else has already died for us. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that there aren't consequences of sin. And it's a foolish thing to say that I'm going to deny this terrible truth that sin ends in death. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has dealt with death. We can have victory in sin through him. Now, here's the third thing. I demonstrate unbelief when I focus on the seemingly pleasant aspects of sin. I demonstrate unbelief when I focus on the seemingly pleasant aspects of sin. Let's look at verse 5, and I also want to go into verse 6 here. 
the serpent again is talking. He, Eve has said, uh, "On the day that we eat of this, we'll, we'll, we'll die. Don't don't uh, don't eat of this fruit. Don't touch it, lest you die." The serpent says, "No, it's not true. You will not surely die." And, and then the serpent says this in verse five: "For God knows." In other words, God's character is is being impugned here. God God knows something that He doesn't want you to know. Uh, God knows something that He doesn't want you to experience. He says, "God knows." That when you eat of it, when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the serpent says, I want you to understand that, that committing this act of sin will be a good thing. And God knows it, and now you know it too. And what does the, the woman do? She focuses on the good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. So she's focusing on these, these, these good aspects of sin. To be able to do that and continue down a path of unbelief that leads to disobedience means that I'm, I'm wrongly understanding God and his character, right? To be able to pursue the path of disobedience means that there's, there's unbelief. To be able to focus on the pleasant aspects of sin means that there's a heart of unbelief. I don't think that it's helpful as we think about our battle with sin. I don't think that it's helpful to deny that sin brings pleasure. In other words, when a person says, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with immorality and, and I just in, enjoy this, this act of immorality, I don't think it's helpful to say, no, sin isn't pleasant. You're wrong. I don't think that's helpful because I, I don't think that's true. When a person says, you know, when I'm upset at, at, at something, I find myself struggling with anger and just, just erupting in anger, I, I don't think it's helpful just to say, well, that's, that's dumb. What possible benefit can you get from that? I, I don't think that's helpful because I think it denies what Scripture teaches about sin. Paul talks about the law of sin in Romans 7, and there's, there's a benefit we get from sinning, and, and we need to acknowledge that. There's pleasure that sin brings. We read James 1 earlier, but listen to it again. James 1.13, Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I'm being tempted by God. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, there is real pleasure that we receive when we commit sin. Now, here's the way I think we do respond to it. I think we give people this, this, the heart of faith as we describe the pleasures that are far in excess of the pleasures that sin will bring. We point them to the person of, of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, it's, Colossians chapter 2 is a very interesting chapter to look at as we think about disobedience and, and how we can be obedient to God. Later in, in chapter 2, kind of toward the end of chapter 2, Paul talks about how useless some things are in pursuing obedience. So he talks about, at the end of chapter 2, he says, look... Um, or actually, this is kind of, I guess, more toward the beginning or middle. He says, um, you know, don't, uh, don't pursue things. Don't pursue things that are of, of no benefit. And then, and then at the end, he says, look, don't, don't submit yourself to regulations like don't handle this, don't taste this, don't touch this. And he says, those things uh, look like they're going to be effective. 
but they're in, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, a person says, I'm struggling with sin, so I'm just not going to touch this thing, or I'm not going to taste this thing, or I'm going to do these rules. And, and Paul says, look, that, that seems like it's going to be effective, but if that's your whole plan for dealing with sin, you're going to find it's of no use in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because the flesh, the desire for, for the pleasure that sin brings is very, very strong. So how do I deal with that? Well, the beginning of chapter 2 tells us, and in, the, in the chapter 3, Paul says, look, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you to have an understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, look, I don't want to give you a bunch of rules. Don't taste this. Don't touch this. I want to point you to Christ. And to see the one in whom all the, the treasures of, of, of everything are hidden. And once you see Christ, then the not tasting, not touching, avoiding things, that's going to flow from that, but that's not where you start. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 11. He's talking about Moses. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the, what he calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. I think what we do is, is we help a person think rightly about sin as we say, yeah, there are some pleasures that sin brings, but they are fleeting pleasures. And it is far better to suffer the reproach of Christ than to, than to contain a treasure with all the, the treasures of Egypt. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite psalms. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Sin is not fought with legalism, with asceticism, denying yourself things. It's found in granting yourself the pursuit of the greatest treasure of all, Jesus Christ. And the fleeing of sin flows from that. The heart of unbelief is demonstrated when I, when I focus on the seemingly pleasant aspects of sin instead of believing what God says when God says, I am far greater, I'm a far greater treasure than any pleasures that sin can bring. That's how you fight sin. That's how you fight immorality. That's how you fight dishonesty. That's how you fight lust. That's how you fight greed. That's how you fight anger, unrighteous anger, by focusing on the pleasures that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of unbelief doesn't believe those things. So what's the fruit of unbelief? What's the fruit of unbelief? Here's what it is. The fruit of unbelief is disobedience, right? She, she sees these things and she doesn't, she, she sees God's uh, rules as restrictions. She uh, focuses, she, she kind of denies this reality that sin ends in death. And she focuses on the pleasant aspects of, of sin. So she doesn't believe God in that sense as well. She takes the fruit and she eats. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And what's the fruit of unbelief? It's, it's this sin they eat, they disobey. And sin 
It doesn't bring the pleasure that it was promised, right? The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's, it's this picture of, of pathetic response, right? I appreciate how one pastor put it. He acknowledges that what Satan says about their eyes being opened is that there's a half-truth there. They do know good and evil, but I love how he puts it. He says, God knows good and evil the way a cancer surgeon knows cancer, which is very different than the way that a patient knows it, right? God knows good and evil outside of himself. Eve and, and Adam now knew evil inside of themselves. They knew cancer as a victim, not as a physician. The fruit of unbelief, the fruit of unbelief is sin and all the consequences that sin brings. What is Moses trying to teach us here in these these seven verses? What is God trying to teach us through Moses' writing here? He's trying to teach us that the essence of obedience to God begins with a heart of faith, saying, God, I believe what you're saying about who I am. I believe what you're saying about, about how I should live. I believe what you're saying because I believe you. I trust in you and your character, your goodness, your graciousness, your mercy. I believe that you are the one in whom I need to trust. There's so much we're going to talk about in the coming weeks as we talk about the consequence of sin. But, but here's the good news, right? Because of what happens here, we live in a fallen world. Because of what happens here, and we'll talk more about this next week, we have what we call a, a sin nature, a fallen nature. But the good news is that because of our nature, we also can receive not just sin from Adam, but we can receive righteousness from Jesus Christ. Righteousness from Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, and again, we're kind of at the beginning of the story. We're at the beginning of the story, and even as we talk about the beginning of the story, God's going to give Adam and Eve hope. We're not getting that this morning, but what we see from our point of God's story of redemption is that we have Jesus Christ who can completely deal with sin. A sin that seems so great, God can still deal with through Jesus Christ. I think as we think about how to, how to respond to this, well, of course I need to respond with, with faith. And I think also with a, with a heart of belief, believing what God says about sin and its danger. You know, Jesus says about sin, and it's better to, to pluck out your eye than to, to, if it causes you to stumble. It's better to cut off your, your right hand than to engage in, in sin if your right hand is going to cause you to stumble. Sin is a serious thing. We can't deal with it on our own. We can only deal with it through the grace of God, through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving his forgiveness. As we receive his forgiveness, we must, by God's grace, pursue obedience with a a passion, a passion that flows out of believing what God says about himself and about what is good for us, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you teach us here about belief in you and and how unbelief manifests itself and demonstrates itself. I I pray that our hearts would be knitted uh, together with one another in in love for you and that our love for you would manifest itself as we believe all that you say about yourself and it would manifest itself as, as we are obedient to you. Not out of a desire to be great legalistic rule keepers, but out of a desire to live as you've called us to live in obedience to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.